Hello and welcome to East Norfolk's Very Politics Podcast, Ian The Loop. Uh, my name is Dylan and this week's actually a bit different. We're joined by a guest, uh, joined by a special guest, our local MP for some of us, not for all of us, but we're joined by Brandon Lewis, former Cabinet Secretary, former Justice Secretary and former Minister for Northern Ireland, a variety of roles. And we're basically going to interview him some questions. And our first one's asked by Emma, so... So, I was wondering how your job has changed since becoming a backbencher since your former role as a minister. Cool. Yeah, no, it's changed quite a lot. Uh, the, the biggest change is, for the first time in 10 years, I have control of my diary again. Uh, as a minister, the department literally take control of your diary and just will fill it all day, every day, with lots of you know really important and, and interesting stuff, but it's, it's in their control. So, as a backbencher... Um, one of the things you have to get used to is you get to choose what you do and, and uh, have control of your diary. Um, <clears throat> and then you can get involved in things again. So I've just become the chairman of the all-party parliamentary group for local government. I'm just looking at getting involved with a couple other things, particularly on coastal erosion and some of the issues like that, that when you're a minister, you can't because you have, you first of all, you obviously have collective responsibility in government, so you have to be working on government issues and your ministerial issues, whether it's a junior ministry in your particular field or as a secretary of state, um, uh, in the jobs I had as Secretary of State where you're looking across your department you don't look beyond that that's one of the things that um, I hadn't really appreciated until I was in the job is when you're a Secretary of State or a Minister you really are focused on that particular job and what's going on other, other than when it comes to Cabinet you leave to your colleagues so you become very um, sort of focused in a particular area so being able to look more widely again things things more generally that I'm interested in and obviously uh, have an impact for Great Yarmouth is, uh, is is probably the biggest change but having control of the diary is, is good again um, Right, we, we basically got an answer to this in the talk that you held um, earlier on but um, what do you think of the um, Windsor framework, seeing as you were previously Secretary of State for Northern Ireland? Sure, yeah. Look, when, um, as the Northern Ireland Secretary, I wasn't the one, we didn't do the negotiations. The negotiations with the EU, both on the protocol and then what became the Windsor framework, were done by, at one time, the Cabinet Office and then the Foreign Office. And my department, the Northern Ireland Office, would feed in. So we would be feeding, these are what the issues are. This is what we think the uh, communities, because you've always got to make sure you've got the balance between the nationalist and the unionist community. And obviously on the protocol, the issue um, was with the unionist community particularly, and the business community who uh, can't get access to goods and products. I think the Windsor framework will make things a lot better for businesses. What we've got to see, and the lawyers are all ploughing through at the moment, is the detail of it to see whether the Stormont break works and gives enough local democratic accountability to work for the unionist community. And the DUP will come back with a view on that. You know, they'll take their time, but I suspect in the next week or two. But certainly the business community have welcomed it because it does it does remove mo most of the administration that's been causing them a problem. Uh, it's the implementation in practice we're going to have to wait and see and whether it allows businesses in Great Britain to then decide the admin is now low enough that they're happy to supply Northern Ireland again, uh, the proof of that will have to be in the pudding. So we'll, we'll, we'll have, we've all got to wait and see. But, but it's definitely a, a, a big improvement. It's been you know, 18 months of negotiations to get to that point. Um, do you support a change in the uh, voting systems? And if so, what would you choose? Do you mean as in getting rid of first past the post? No, I don't. So I, I wouldn't choose anything else. First past the post generally gives you the most um, reliable route through to having a government that's got uh, a working majority. 
the coalition from 2010 to 2015 worked. I mean, I, I was I was administering it, but it worked because the way that they structured that um, generally systems other than first past the post too often throw up coalitions that you know some countries take months to get their government in place Germany you know has occasionally taken months Italy has, has been another example of where very destabilizing government so generally first past the post gives you a government with a clear majority uh, and I think that works well in a democracy it also gives you a very clear and direct link between your member of parliament your representative you know the people of Great Yarmouth elect me you know, whatever ministerial role you may be fortunate enough to hold as an MP, and obviously I have to say I've, I've held a fair few, you still always have to remember you're only able to be a minister because the people of your constituency elect you. They come first, your constituency. When you don't have first past the post, particularly if you have proportional representation, which is effectively what the European elections used to be, you lose that because you're on a list system and you're there because you're on the list chosen by your party. Um, you don't have the same direct connection. Uh, so I think first past the post works for the local democratic accountability and for stability in government. Would you support the re-inclusion of direct references to honesty, integrity, transparency and accountability back into the ministerial code to ensure that MPs are held accountable for their actions in office? Um, well, I think... I mean, transparency and accountability is something should apply to all MPs, not just ministers. I mean, of course, the ministerial code does change quite regularly. Yeah. Uh, it's in the gift of a prime minister. It's, it's you know, um, interpreted by a prime minister. Different PMs use it um, in different ways and interpret it in different ways. Ultimately, all of us who are ministers, you're effectively guided by the Nolan principles, which cover all those things anyway. So there is an argument that the ministerial code, whether it needs to explicitly say those things or not, you kind of have to live by the Nolan Code anyway. So the Nolan Principle, sorry, uh, even in local government as well. So, you know, the reality is now transparency particularly is there because even if it's uh, not explicitly referenced in the ministerial um, um, declarations or the ministerial code, the reality is with a 24-hour media and social and digital media, I can't imagine there's anything any anybody in public life is ever going to do that somewhere down the line isn't transparent because, you know, somebody somewhere's got a camera and it's going to catch you as Michael Gove's dancing exploits have proven. So um, I think transparency is kind of built into public life now. Um, it's been three years since we've left the um, European Union and obviously we've um, had a couple of issues of lately, so, so for example, Northern Ireland and um, with not having enough people to fill certain roles such as IT. Um, from today, would you say that um, you believe Brexit has been more of a positive on the UK, or would you say it's been played more of a negative role now? Um, I mean, ultimately, I think, even as somebody who voted and campaigned for Remain, um, I, I actually think ultimately it's probably the right thing for the UK, because after the vote in 2016, um, I became, I, I was put on what's called the Justice and Home Affairs Committee when I was working at the Home Office, which meant I was out in Europe regularly in Brussels, working with the Council of Ministers, which was actually really good and really useful because you're sharing good ideas and best practice and working together. But the, the more I dealt with the European Commission, which I saw in that role, um, and certainly in the Northern Ireland role, the more I feel that leaving and not being tied into the Commission, which is pretty much unaccountable uh, and is a bureaucratic structure, I don't think works for the UK. Um, I found it a very, very difficult unit to deal with. And actually, the Northern Ireland Protocol is a good example because even where I would say Mal Shevkovich, who's a very good guy, very pragmatic, and wanted to, I think, find a way to get a deal done, um, he was restricted because of the mandate. And as a commission, he's restricted because the commission wouldn't give him a, a, 
ability yeah. to move, so he couldn't really negotiate, and he's got to go back to 27 member states. So the structure of that, I don't think, works very well. Having said that, the flip side is, you're right, we left three years ago, but we actually had the vote in 2016, yeah. and the fact that now, some seven years on, there are still things we're working through is the downside of Brexit, that it is going to take, a, you know, we've been in 40 years, it's going to take yeah. a long time to really work that through. Um, and ultimately, therefore, get the best. The, the, the strength of it for our economy will be when we're able to diverge and do things in a way that makes us uh, more attractive to a wider global market. Uh, and there are big opportunities globally between Australia, Japan, India, particularly in America. Uh, there's a lot we can do. So I think ultimately it'll be a good thing, but it's going to take time. Yeah. How do you... Oh, sorry. How do you balance having to spend time in Westminster and also meet the needs of your constituents in Great Yarmouth? Uh, that's a very good question. I think it's probably one of the most difficult things, particularly as a minister, uh, because as a minister, you're in Westminster doing the ministerial job and obviously voting and doing things in Parliament. You then have to fit in for whatever your ministerial role is, getting around the country. So as policing minister, getting around the policing police districts around the country, as local government minister, all the local councils around the country, as justice minister for a glorious few weeks getting around prisons and various things around the country. Um, as Northern Ireland Secretary, of course, I, I was in Belfast half the week most weeks. Uh, so then also being able to spend time in the constituency and for the constituency. Doing work for the constituency is, is not such a problem because in the modern age with Zoom and technology, and most of what the MP does for a constituency isn't turning up at a fair and opening something. That's what the councillors and the mayor does, and that's what they're rightly there for. Um, what the MP does for constituency generally is done in Westminster. It's either getting a piece of legislation changed, lobbying a minister for money for the third river crossing. You can't do that in the constituency. You need to be in Westminster. So I know everybody likes to see their MP in the constituency all the time, but if they are, they're not doing the job. Because the job, primarily, and if constituents have got casework between Zoom and the phone and that, you, you tend to deal with it that way now, you generally end up having to get onto the, all of these groups. So whether it's a problem with the post office, a problem with benefits, their office is all in London. So actually the MPs, most of what you need to do is actually London-based. But there is an issue because you want the balance. You need to be in the constituency with your constituents, with the businesses in the constituency to also understand what they need. And you've also got to try and find time to remind your family what you look like if you're fortunate enough to have a family um, and the dogs. Um, so getting the balance of that is, I have always found, the hardest part of the job. Um, I'm not going to say I've always got it right. That's for others to decide, um, including my family. Um, but that's, that's the most challenging thing. It's getting easier, though, because of modern technology. You can do more from more places, actually. So with the increasing cost of living, like cost of electricity, for example, how can colleges such as this one be expected to keep running efficiently when funding's frozen at £4,500 per pupil? How can they survive like this? So there's a number of things. So first of all, in government, we've got to do a better job of actually uh, having getting the energy prices, uh, and they are coming down. Obviously, we've got the energy price cap, which helps even institutions. But we've also got to do a better job of making sure we've got energy security and energy supply that keeps prices low. You know, the reality is we are all suffering, and this does go back to Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Um, <clears throat> that had a massive impact on world energy prices. And although we are in the UK less directly reliant on Putin for gas and electricity, 
we're part of a global market and most of our European partners are heavily reliant. So it has a knock-on effect. So we've had a real, there's a real issue with that. Now, energy prices are already coming down at wholesale levels quite dramatically. Um, so the benefit of that will come through again you know, as people renew their contracts and, um, and that comes through. So that, that will ease more quickly. But it's why we've got to invest, whether it's wind technology, whether it's wave technology. I met a company who wants to invest in Yarmouth in wave technology just last week the nuclear power stations which we should have been investing in in the last 10 20 years i personally actually think you know at the moment we've done a deal with the us for gas it's coming from fracked gas but we're reticent of having fracking in the uk and that doesn't stack up to me that would create more jobs more energy security so we've got to do more than that um, but there is also an element of in any business and i've run businesses um if you're running a business well, you're always, as a business manager, looking at what can you do to run your organisation more efficiently and more effectively. And we do need to do that across the educational state, across the health services state. We've got to be honest with ourselves about there is a limited amount of money out there. You can't just keep taxing people. Um, you've got to look at how do you do things more efficiently and where does government spend its money. And that does lead to tough decisions sometimes. You stated in your talk previously that to make an MP being more attractive to young people, the role needs less work-related stress, less threats and potentially more pay. Why is this same view not applied to other professions in crisis, like nurses and doctors currently striking? Um, well, there's a couple of things. So in terms of the um, intrusion, what, what, I think there's a couple of things for MPs. I mean, the, the role of an MP has changed over the years, um, not least of all the the public intrusion into private lives which will put people off now I'm, I'm in it I've got no problem with it I've you know you, you just get used to it but putting new people off going it will put people off going into it in a way that other professionals just don't get um, you don't read the front page of Daily Mail you know going through or any other newspaper just not picking on the Daily Mail um, into people's private lives in quite the way that we have a, we all have a fascination with what politicians are doing you know um, there's not many professions where what Matt Hancock did with his then girlfriend which quite rightly made the news and quite rightly left government over it. But in any other profession, that would not have been front page of a national newspaper. So there is a difference. Um, and look, as I say, I think across all professions, you know, we've got a number of professions where we need more people to come into the profession. And we've got to um, do more about why they're good to go into. And it's not just um, teaching and nursing, which are amazing professions. Even if you take hospitality, people are not going into the hospitality industry. Uh, we need more people, good people in that. And if pe people do well in, you know, the, in the pub trade, you can, I mean, I know somebody who's in their mid-20s earning over a million pound a year running pubs. Um, but most people, and I, I worked in a pub when I first left college, I left, worked in a pub until I got, as I saw at the time, a proper job. Uh, when actually working in pubs and working through hotels can take you all around the world in very well-paid, very exciting jobs. But we don't look at those industries that way. Um, and I think there's more that we need to do to promote them. And it, I think we went through a period, certainly before the crash in 08, 09, where everybody wanted to get a degree and go and work in the city of London, when actually there's lots of other professions where if you want to earn money, you can earn more money. You know, construction is a good example. Um, but also you can do, you can have much more rewarding. And it's, it's some people, it's about understanding and we've got to do a better job through education and, and, and public life of explaining how different roles and different vocations can be so rewarding for people as well. Um, and it's not always just about the money either. I mean, you know, um, one of the things I always say to people about politics is, and particularly local politics, is we don't spend enough time talking about why we do it and why we enjoy it. And there is nothing better, and we, because we're all, you know, in Britain we're quite humble about these things, we don't like to talk about it, but if, if you help 
and I use the example in the in the talking there of you know local councils can be really important because they'll fix things that, like the pothole that's driving somebody crazy fixing that makes a difference to their lives that's a really good thing to do and it's great when a constituent comes and says look you fixed this issue for me and my family you got us access to something we needed in education or the health service and it's changed their lives somebody we've helped recently gets um, some uh, move home and, and get some special support they needed after um having some disability issues that is a really rewarding thing to do because i know that the work that i and my team have done have made the life much better for that family and that's a really good thing to do so these vocational jobs i think we've all got to do better and the people in those jobs about saying why they enjoy doing it um so that we educate more people around these are things to look at doing because they're enjoyable to do and can give you a good life because you're helping others Um, Keir Starmer has recently said that he believes the House of Lords should be reformed and possibly elected. Do you agree with this? I think the House of Lords is something that should consistently um, evolve and reform in that sense. Um, <clears throat> but I wouldn't have it elected. I think he's wrong on that because then you end up with competing chambers. We've got an elected chamber. I also think there is a real asset personally in the um, appointment of the House of Lords. So. I, I popped a case to junior school were down in Parliament uh, doing the tour and the educational stuff in Parliament and I went in to see them just as they were having explained to them how people get in the House of Lords and I thought uh, it was good because the, the team there who were talking them through explained to them about people being appointed because of skill sets. So one of the benefits of the House of Lords is the Prime Minister and you know, the Leader of the Opposition nom nominates people for the House of Lords as well but generally people get nominated for the House of Lords because they have an expertise or they've delivered, gone beyond the call of duty in an amazing way for the country, whether it's because they're an amazing sports person, whether it's because they've done something philanthropic, whether they've been the most successful business people in the world. They've, through that, the reason they've got into laws is they have done something that means they've got a skill set and an experience that is valuable. Or even politicians. You know, ex-cabinet members who go in the House of Lords, and I appreciate I'm an ex-cabinet member, so maybe I've got, a bit, you know, but I've, I've got, uh, I'm too close to this. But if you think about some of the politicians who have gone in the Lords over the years, they've been in cabinet, they've got a wealth of experience, they've given way in the House of Commons to they've either lost their seat or they've retired because you know they feel it's time for somebody new to come in. So a very good friend of mine, um, Eric Pickles, was a member of the House of Commons. He retired in 2017. And he's now in the House of Lords. Well, he retired in 2017 because he had been a cabinet member. Uh, his view was if he carried on in the Commons, he was taking away a chance for somebody younger to come in who might then form a ministerial career. And he'd had his ministerial career. And he wanted to carry on doing the work he does and he's interested in, particularly for the Holocaust um, and the Education Trust Holocaust Memorial. But he can do that without being in the House of Commons. So he made a very conscious decision, I'm sure he won't mind me saying, to, um, to go and he can do that in the House of Lords. But his expertise and his knowledge in government is invaluable to people. So for prime ministers and, and leaders of opposition to be able to put people in the Lords who can help um, uh, inform, because what they do is when legislation goes there, they've got all that experience. They so, will hold on, this business legislation, as a businessman, um, needs tweaking because this is my experience from business I can put into it. As a long-standing politician, from my experience, this is, that is invaluable, that challenge and that expertise. And that I actually think it's invaluable. You can't get that in an elected chamber because why would Alan Sugar stand for election? But Alan Sugar's experience in business can be invaluable sometimes. You know, Lord Dannon, you know, his experience from the armed forces is invaluable in the House of Commons. I found his experience phenomenal when I was developing some legislation to protect our veterans and to deal with the issues of legacy in Northern Ireland. But I can't see why Lord Dannon would have ever wanted to stand for an election. Um, so we, but we need that expertise. So I think that that 
the patronage that people criticise, I actually think, is the strength of the House of Lords. But it always needs to evolve and reform. And we don't need, I, I'm, I don't think uh, we've done enough of that. So we've got to look at that, but not an elected chamber. Sorry. Are we out of time? Yeah, we're out of time. So that's all we've got time for. So we'd just like to thank Brandon for coming in and answering these questions. It's much appreciated you giving up your time. And yeah, thank you for letting us keep you in the loop. Yeah, the end, I guess. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for listening. <laughs>